Welcome to the Mix Masters Podcast, a program created by me, Steve Litcher, live sound engineer for the band Stitched Up Heart. I created this podcast during the COVID pandemic as a means to keep in contact with my friends and mentors from the live sound industry. Touring with Stitched Up Heart has led me to meet some really incredible people, and I wanted to introduce you to their stories. So whether you're an experienced engineer, a hobbyist, or someone who's just wondered what goes into mixing a live music show, this podcast is for you. I've got to thank my friend Merritt Goodwin for this killer intro music. Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's an incredible musician and composer. Give him a shout on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin, or on Instagram at Doubt the Trust. Thanks again for joining me. Now let's bring up the faders and start the podcast. My guest for today's episode is Nick Rucker. Nick is the incredibly gifted front of house engineer and production manager for everyone's favorite hair metal band, Steel Panther. I met Nick while touring with him in 2019 and immediately tried to learn as much as I possibly could. Nick puts up some of the best mixes you'll ever hear, night after night, venue after venue. His system tuning skills are masterful and his snare drum sound will literally change your life. Nick lives in the Los Angeles area with his wife and their three dogs and you can find him online at Instagram as ElmaBees, E-L-M-A-B-E-E-Z. Be sure to give him a follow and definitely check out his handiwork with Steel Panther as soon as we can get back to touring. Please sit back, grab a pencil and paper to take some notes, and enjoy today's episode. Please note that we also had a couple of minor technical difficulties during recording thanks to a crummy internet connection. I tried to patch in Nick's audio as best I could, but in the interest of getting this published quickly, it is what it is. That said, I hope you enjoy the episode, and we'll see you soon. Thanks. Welcome to the Mix Masters podcast, everybody. I am your host, Steve Litcher, based in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm joined today by Nick Rucker, front of house engineer for Steel Panther. Nick's coming to us by way of Los Angeles uh, through FaceTime. Nick, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me here today. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so I met Nick while on tour last year. Uh, the band that I work with, Stitched Up Heart, was uh, fortunate enough to be the direct support for Steel Panther. And I met Nick in Boston, Massachusetts, at the very first show that we did uh, with Steel Panther. And from the very minute I said hi to Nick, I could tell that he was a wonderful person, uh, very willing to help, uh, endured a lot of really silly questions from me. <laughs> So thanks, Nick, for your patience with that. Uh, I, I have to find a way to repay you for that. Uh, I think just having me on here to pick my brain is, uh, is a fine repayment. And uh, hopefully hopefully we'll both get something out of this because there's a lot of stuff that I either haven't thought about in years or that I didn't think was worth talking about. So this might be a good way for me to tap into that that part of my psyche. Yeah, no, it'll be exciting. How are you holding up with uh, the sort of unplanned, unwanted vacation that we all got introduced to? Um, I was actually supposed to be off tour this whole month of April, and so really life isn't much different other than I can't go to the places I used to like to go on my on my time off. Uh, and, and fortunately, I had a, um, a studio space built on my house. It, it got completed back in February, so I have a place to at least do things regarding music, write, mix. Um, whereas if this had happened last year, I don't know what I would do. Yeah. 
there's something to be said about the uh, downtime and making, you know, making the most of it and trying to uh, stay productive and creative. So it's awesome that you've got that studio space. Um, so as I alluded to right off uh, the beginning there, I, I know that uh, everybody knows you as the front of house engineer for Steel Panther, but let's step back a little bit. So um, you're musically inclined. I watched you do a lot of uh, sound check work, playing the bass, playing the drums, playing guitar. Uh, how did you get uh, interested in music? When did that start? And um, take us back, you know, to when you first fell in love with music and when you sort of knew that this is what you wanted to do. Yeah, my... Um my musical background goes back to, as far as I know, my grandfather, who was a jazz drummer. Um, his son, my uncle, was also a drummer. And then I found out sort of later in my, in my early 20s that my dad was sort of a, a closet shredder. Uh, he played the Hammond organ when he was a kid. He grew up in Pasadena, South Pasadena, Alhambra, like which is actually where I ended up living now. Um, and he has these stories about growing up down the street from Kenny Loggins and he used to loan Kenny his super reverb amp back in the, back in the sixties. So music's been in my family. Um, you know, like most kids started on piano at nine or 10 years old, uh, was sort of quickly discouraged from worrying about learning to read music because I played everything from ear and from memory. So when I got a guitar at age 10, um, I just sort of would pick up stuff from ear and translate it to my fingers and commit things to memory. Um, I never really learned theory, but I definitely know when something sounds like I want it to sound and, and how to get that sound. So um, into my teenage years, I, I was fortunate enough to grow up in Santa Barbara where there was, back in the 90s, there was an all-ages music venue. Um, it was four kids. There was no drugs or alcohol allowed and touring punk bands would come through. Um, so I got to see from an early age, you know, bands like Jimmy Eat World and AFI, like long before they were signed and big. Um, and there was a, a guy who was sort of in charge of the production at this club. And he used to run this music festival in Santa Barbara every summer. And rather than hire proper stage crew from local sound companies, he would intern kids between 16 and 18 um, to basically have show them how to run a show. And his name was Skip, and he had a mullet, and he was a country music DJ. And he used to do front of house for Motley Crue back in, I want to say it was Theater of Pain, like that era. Wow. So he had a lot of stories. He had a lot of knowledge. And I ended up kind of doing what he did, which was, uh, working for a hair metal band some 30 years later. Um, but you know, he took me under his wing, showed me all the ins and outs of sound. He had a little, a field manual that he made called Gorilla Tactics, but spelled G O R I L L A. And it was this sort of crudely, <laughs> crudely drawn, uh, you know, plastic bound notebook that had diagrams you know, shows you how a microphone works, signal flow, uh, how equalization works, just basic components of a sound system. Um, so that was really my start. So at age 17, I was already working in bars doing sound for the local music scene in Santa Barbara, which was at the time very vibrant. 
a lot of bands had gotten signed around that time. Uh, if you think of Dishwalla, Summer Camp, um, earlier than that was Toad the Wet Sprocket. But there was like a happening college music scene back then, and, and sadly it's not really there anymore. Yeah, live venues have sort of uh, disappear, are disappearing slowly and steadily, and it's really unfortunate. Um, but that's really cool that you got to do all of that at such a young age and um, had Skip uh, show you the ways of the, the world. Did he share that plastic-bound manual, manual with others? Was it sort of the training guide, or was that something that he just shared with you because he trusted yeah. you and wanted you to... Yeah, every everyone that was a student in his class, you know, it started with maybe a dozen or so people, um, everyone got that manual. That was sort of part of his curriculum. Wow. Do you still have that? I think it's in a, it's in a box somewhere in, in my storage unit. Oh my gosh. That would be fantastic yeah, yeah. to see sometime. <laughs> that would be I'd love to go over it sometime and, and see it, see all the little crudely drawn diagrams. Yeah. Wow. So you go, you, you're working in clubs around Santa Barbara, seeing, you know, working with some acts that would become very prominent. Um, where did things go from there? How did, you know, where did you progress uh, from, from that environment? So I was uh, usually on the stage uh, around this time. So I, I picked up the drums at 15 or 16 and just played in as many bands as I could. So around 2002, 2001, maybe, um, I was in a band. We got signed to Capital to a development deal. We got a it seemed like a huge amount of money back then, but it was just enough to put us on the road for, for six months. And so we got to just pile into a van, pull a trailer and just do gigs. Um, and I learned a lot about, <laughs> you know, how to play in the most, uh, non-ideal environments possible. So, um, you know, everything from garage parties to, actual punk clubs and then a couple of real real theaters um the sort of the apex of that of that band was to open for jimmy Eat world at the wiltern right after bleed american came out so that was a cool thing to be to be on the stage for that um but sort of all all during those years i was still working when i was home doing a, you know a few nights a week uh, at a club in santa barbara and let me try and fast forward to, so maybe 10, <laughs> 10 years went by and um, I did a, a, a little bit of uh, hotel AV, which was kind of beneath my abilities, but because it's corporate, you have to come in at the ground level and, and no one trusts your abilities. No one, you know, they, let's say I, I worked in a hotel and I know what I know and I can do what I can do. Um, and a big you know, seminar comes in, they would rather pull an employee from another region to run the soundboard than to train from within or to promote from within. So I didn't like working in that environment. Not only was it corporate, I had to keep my hair short. I had to wear uh, a collared shirt and sometimes a suit. And it was generally just one microphone, two handheld microphones and a projector screen. And I didn't feel like I was really being utilized. So, um, in the early 2000s, there was this hair metal cover band called Metal Shop. And on Monday nights, they would do a show at the Viper Room. And back when I was in, in Santa Barbara still, this was a thing that 
my friends had found out about and they would go down there Monday night. They'd get home at four or five in the morning, you know, cause the, <laughs> at that time they didn't go, they didn't hit the stage until 1230. So they'd fin- they'd finish, you know, right at 145 last call, go to the after party and then drive the two hours back to Santa Barbara. So I, I made it to this maybe once back when that was still happening. Um, and I remember that the security was so lax there, like you would send one person to the door, they'd pay admission, they'd get in, they'd walk out the smoking door that's on sunset, and then go to their friend's car and show everybody what the stamp looks like. And then you would just take a little marker and draw something similar to it and smear it so it looked like you'd been, like you'd washed your hands. And then everybody walks in through the front door. Um, that's how we got in back then. I, I, I might have not even been 21 the first time I went to see them. Um, but, you know, as, as the years went on, I kept in touch. Um, oh, I should back up and you can chop this however you want. Um, there was a club in Santa Barbara I worked at where they, they being Metal Shop, um, had went through a name change. They were, they were now called Metal School. Um, same thing, just doing, doing the 80s covers. Uh, they came through this club I worked at maybe three or four times. And we really worked well together. They liked the way I worked. Uh, their drummer, Darren, made sure to get my number. And um, I want to say four or five years passed, and we hadn't really crossed paths. And I was working this, this hotel job that I hated and living in Orange County, which I also hated. Um, it just wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't... It wasn't my scene, man. Yeah. You know, um, Too many housewives. Yeah, I was... And I was a... I grew up in a in a hippie college community by the beach and it just, it didn't suit my, my vibe. Um, I remember going to meet a friend of mine at the key club and I called Darren because we still had kept in touch. And I said, Hey, I'm going to come up and see your show. And he said, cool, I'll put you on the list. No big deal. Um, and then he called me like right, right back and was like, Hey, what are you doing for work right now? And I said, honestly, I fucking hate it. Um, and he said, well, we just had to fire a guy. So how do, you, how do you feel about coming up on Monday nights? And I just need someone to set up the drum kit and watch the stage during the show. It's basically, you know, get there at five, put together stuff for an hour, and then go have dinner, come back at nine or 10, and then watch the show. And I said, fuck yeah, I'll do that. Anything was more exciting than babysitting a, a lavalier mic at a a medical symposium. So <laughs> that was really the start of it. And after three or four weeks of this, the front of house guy at that venue got fired for drinking on the job. And the band wanted to promote me. And there was a house front of house guy there who was like super upset by that. He kind of stormed off that night because the band wanted to take their guy. And he was like, well, I'm the house guy, so I should be able to do it. Um, and I, I really don't feel bad about that. <laughs> Sorry, dude. It's all good. <laughs> so that's uh, so. Then, of course, uh, that band evolved into what we now know as Steel Panther. And you've been front of house ever since. Yeah, this was uh, 2006. So my my actual first gig for them that wasn't just at the key club at the time was it was like a Halloween show in Hollywood in 2006. And I had never 
been to Hollywood on Halloween before. And um, I can tell you back then what a, what a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, I, I live in Madison, Wisconsin, and we used to, well, every Halloween they have something called Freak Fest on State Street, and State Street is always closed to traffic, so it's pedestrian traffic only. But uh, it got to be so out of control in the early 2000s, they would have, you know, 250,000, 300,000 people on this one street, and Madison's a town of 200,000 people. Oh, my God. So the population would double <laughs> on Halloween, and you can imagine the level of shenanigans uh, that took place. So I can only imagine what Hollywood is like on, on Halloween. Yeah, it was uh, definitely a, a throwing my my feet to the fire. I don't know the, <laughs> the phrase. Um, but yeah, they, they, they got me right in there. And it was like, you're our guy. You do everything that we need to, to have done. Wow. Did you, um, so then when did they really start touring prominently and how did you adapt to that role? Uh, you know, you're, I, you were used to playing regular clubs and the, the local circuit and whatnot, probably some festivals and, and things, but how did they, uh, transition into touring and, and how did you go about, uh, approaching that? Well, the, the thing that people don't often know about Steel Panther is that they really did everything in reverse order. So they, they began their career with the lax, casual, weekly gig at a place where everyone knows everything. You walk in right before doors, drop your guitar off on stage, someone plugs it in for you, walk out, do the show, and then you drive home. And that was the first 10 years of that band. And then in 2009, they decided, oh, we actually want to make our own music and put out a record. So they signed to Universal, they put out a record, and our first real big uh, entrance to the world of touring was Download Festival 2009. That is a, uh, that's a pretty big festival to, to be introduced to. What did you do to uh, prepare for that? I had no fucking clue what I was doing. <laughs> so it, it was just me. I was the lone, the lone crew guy. And we're on... The second, no, the third stage at Download, which is the tent. And it, it, the tent holds about 3,000 people. And there were probably 12,000 people watching the band at that point. And so I'm on stage during the changeover, which was maybe 45 minutes. And I build the drum kit, tune it up, mic it up, run to the guitar, plug it in, make sure it works, run to the bass, plug in, make sure it works. And then the band comes out and I'm still on stage. And I'm supposed to mix front of house, so... I jump off the stage and I have to go, I can't go through the crowd because like I said, there's 12,000 people in a 3,000 person area. And so I'm sort of circling around running as fast as I can. I get to front of house and some guy there is like, I, I, I wasn't sure what to do, but I just, I got everything going for you. And, I'm, and so much of the early years of me working for this band was house guys just kind of helping out and doing what they could to make sure that I could yeah, because you're doing happen. everything. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, that's crazy. And you, to some extent, um, I don't want to jump ahead too far here, but to some extent, they don't tour with a, a huge crew. You know, like for people who may not be aware, um, you know, Nick and the the band get there, get to the venue, you know, early in the day. And every time that I walked into the venue, Nick was up on stage, you know, working on guitars or working on bass just trying to get everything, you know, up and running. And then, uh, yeah, it's, it's so, it's amazing that 
here we are 10 years later and the recipe hasn't changed too much. I feel like we should, we should talk about music business a bit while we're on this conversation because this is a business and this is a way of life uh, for the artist and for the crew. And, you know, the, the more profitable this band is, the longer my career with them can be. And, um, you know, the fact that all tours have been canceled aside, if we just talk about just in general, how, how they run their business and run their operation. Um, in the beginning, it was just me and it was just them. And we didn't know that when you do a festival, you need a proper full crew to be taking all these different positions because you only have so much time. You only have 45 minutes. And when we talk about what kind of tools that we get to work, you know, we think, oh, we've got microphones and we've got, um, we've got consoles. We have the things that we like to choose, but like really we, what we don't often think of is how much of a tool time is. And it doesn't matter if you have your favorite console of choice with all your plugins, if you don't have time to set it up, you are completely worthless. So, um, as the years went on, as this band got bigger, they had management, um, there was serious money being sort of tossed around and they were really trying to build something. So for a number of years, we had a production manager, a tour manager, myself, a monitor person, a guitar tech, a drum tech, a VIP coordinator, a lighting designer, um, a merch seller, and all these, all these positions that, that most big bands, that's, that's their core crew. That's who goes with them everywhere they go. And as this thing started to build and grow, the band weren't necessarily thinking about what does this cost? And management, when, when they take their cut, their commission, before expenses are calculated, uh, if they take a gross, a percentage of the gross, they're not really concerned about cost either. They see money that comes in and they go, yes, money's coming in. Everybody's happy. Everything's great. Um, but when you're spending so much money on production, cargo, um, crew, staffing, all these extra hotels, all these extra flights, um, it starts to add up and it starts to eat into the band's profits. And then at the end of a tour, the band is left going, we would have made more money playing three weekends at a casino than going out to Europe for two months. Why didn't we just do that? Yeah. And so that's kind of where we are at now. We, we operate without management and we operate with a skeleton crew. We just take on local fly dates on regional fly dates, whatever it is, it's me and my backline guy. And we'll, we'll use the house monitor tech. We'll use the house LD. We'll show them how the show works. And I have console files for every console for front of house and monitors because it's a lot cheaper to carry a USB stick in your pocket than, than to take two consoles to the airport. So you know, I've worked with this band on getting their the amount of gear required to do a show down to where it fits in the back of my Prius and I can take it to the airport by myself. And that's the only way that we're that we're still doing this now. Because we would have had to, you know, as the as the market corrects itself and as we we look at how much money the band wants to take home from every show, 
to make it worth their while and worth their time. You know, th- that was the key was getting this thing as agile and portable and easy to do as possible. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's impressive. Um, I I remember walking on stage and you know Satchel's guitar rig is a pedal board, uh, but yet the sound that you guys get from that is absolutely unbelievable. So. Um, you know, to people out there that think you need to travel with, uh, you know, four full stacks of whatever to get that big, you know, rock sound, uh, Satchel would, would prove otherwise. It's really impressive. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a total like tone freak and I have an amp collection at home and really amps practically are, are, they're not, they're not practical anymore. Um, especially when we're all on in-ears now, there isn't really much stage volume, so amps aren't really necessary. And then above all that, Russ, um, Satchel, if you want to call him, he's, he sounds good on anything. Like his, his fingers sound incredible. So it really doesn't matter what he's on, but his setup does sound great. And it fits in the small Pelican case. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it was impressive watching, uh, you know, the load in and the load out and just how streamlined everything was. You guys have really put a lot of effort into, you know, making everything work, uh, efficiently and yet it just, it all works perfectly. It's, it's really amazing. So nicely done there. Thank you. Yeah. It was, it was a long process of going where we, we were super small because we had to be, because we didn't know any better to where we got too big. And then we were sending things air freight to every show and spending a fortune to now whittling it back down to the essentials and, and the job has just gotten easier and, and the shows are better and we're all happier. No, that, um, that was an amazing tour to be a part of. Uh, and like I said, you know, not only just getting to watch you and learn from you and, and pester you with questions, but just to see how things are done. And, uh, it was, it was really eye opening. So, um, Again, I'm going to say thank you about 15 times throughout the next uh, 45 minutes here, but uh, I really do mean it. So thank you. It's nice. It's nice to hear that we're one of those tours that that people have a good experience on. Yeah, I'd have it no other I've, way. I've, yeah, I've been on some of those tours where you're like, "Wow, I've really," I'm not to call people out, but like, "Wow, no, thank you." <laughs> Um, so yeah, so talking about that skeleton crew, um, one of the hats you wore on the heavy metal rules tour, and I'm sure other tours before that was production manager. So you're not only front of house, but you're a production manager. Can you talk about that dual role and, and, uh, the pros and cons of doing both of those and, and anything that you wish you'd known maybe about the, the dual, uh, the two hats? Yeah. So, um, you know, during those years where we toured with a production manager, we had a guy with us uh, named Gary Krosniak, who he he came from large arena and stadium tours. So that's the level of act where you truly do need a production manager. Um, at the level that that Steel Panther are at, the 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 duty of the production manager is basically to liaise with the venue, with the the house production manager, and just communicate. What gear do you have? What gear do you need? Um, to be sort of clear and cohesive with what the band needs so that you can speak for them on their behalf without having to go back and forth a lot. So, you know, I know that most House of Blues size venues pretty much have what we need. And anything that needs to be supplemented, I can take the authority with 
ordering and paying for on the band's behalf without worry of being reprimanded for spending their money. So I know where to save. Uh, let's say we're used to having a certain number of risers on stage and I get a quote back from the house and he says, well, I can get you those risers, but it's going to cost $1,200. I know I can say the band doesn't care $1,200 about those risers, but if it's, you know, within a certain threshold, I can have the authority to, to order things and just make sure that the show can happen. Uh, and then for the last tour that you were on, you toured with a uh, Digico SD11. Um, My favorite desk. It is your favorite desk. Absolutely. That's uh, what what got you turned on to Digico, and and what makes it your favorite desk? Well, uh, my first experience actually touring on a Digico was when we got to open for Judas Priest. We did two months of arena tours, and they were kind enough to share their front of house console with us because it was less work for everybody. Again, it's just loading a scene and handing it off to me. Um, So that was where I really got to get hands-on with it and create my show the way that I wanted it to to be laid out and just to really see what it could do. And I mean, the SD7 is fantastic. It does everything you could possibly want and then more. It does way more than I would need it to do. Um, But I really learned what it could do and what it sounded like and whatever way that those engineers designed that console, it, it vibes with my, the way my brain works and what I like to hear. So I see why dudes who came up in the studio using pro tools are super down with avid consoles. And I have a lot of unpopular opinions about a lot of things in audio, but that's one of the desks that I could not wait to get away from. So to have one that was a quarter of the size of a profile sounded better, did everything I needed it to do, was simpler, had a touch screen, it was more tactile. Uh, mixing is a performance. It's, you know, I need to have my hands on it. I need to feel the song. So that was the console that, that does it for me. It feels the best. It sounds the best the way that I apply my techniques to Steel Panther. You said that your first exposure to the, the Digico was with that Judas Priest tour. Did you have any time to rehearse on the board, or did you just show up at an arena on a Thursday night and you know you, you threw together your your layout and then you know went from there? How did how did that play out? Well, the the tour prior to Judas Priest, we were out in Europe on our own headlining tour, and we were in I want to say it was Sweden. Some, we were in some one of those big multi-purpose venues where there's a medium-sized venue and a large venue, and they're all sort of in the same complex. And there was an SD7 next door. So I asked the house guy, can I go spend an hour or two on that building my show? And so, yeah, I, had, I didn't have time to rehearse with the band, but I know what, what my EQ curves kind of want to look like, and I know how I want things to be laid out. And as I got into that tour, I sort of, I could explore a little, a little bit here and there. Oh, what is the, you know, what does the multiband sound like? Could I insert a graphic EQ on, on this? And that's the console where you can put anything anywhere. So now I have graphic EQs on pretty much everything that's not a drum. And I found that that helps me immensely with getting things a little bit louder in the mix uh, without worrying about feedback or resonant frequencies and you know if you if you say oh i heard the vocals great tonight you know that's why 
I was always impressed. Um, your your mix has really put mine to shame. <laughs> I was I was embarrassed to be out there in front of you uh, many times. But uh, one of the things that just blew my mind was how many graphic EQs you had on the screen of that SD11. Uh, I, I think I, I couldn't wasn't able to count them all even when I was uh, watching you mix. So you are the EQ master. Um, what do you find? You know, is sort of your jumping off point for a vocal, for example, and getting it, you know, to be more uh, present in the mix. What what are you doing with the EQ uh, more often than not that that you're leveraging, you know, to make that happen? Well, you know, uh, we talk about tools a little bit more. You know, the the source obviously is is the most important. So having a good singer. Um, in the right mic, you know, he, Michael Starr, um, in the early days was always a fan of the, of the SM58. And I'm not necessarily a fan of that only because it really, it picks up everything. So if he goes anywhere near the drum kit, I'm getting cymbals louder than his voice in his vocal mic. So, um, Sennheiser was kind enough to work with us for the past six or seven years. And, I, I do like how that mic sounds for what I do. Are um, you using a 935 with him? or not? Yeah, it's a 935. It's a 935 on the SKM2000 transmitter. So it's it's not their super-duper top of the line, but it's not a cheap mic. It's a, it's a pretty expensive setup that we have for him. Um, I usually tend to run his preamp gain fairly low because his singing voice is about 60% as loud as his talking voice. So when he's talking to the crowd, he has the mic straight in his mouth. He doesn't need to worry about control. And that's, so that's basically where I set my starting point is as if he were eating the mic and screaming into it. So the gain is actually pretty low and I make up a lot of it on the back end. So my compressor makeup gain my fader and my VCA are pretty much cranked up to compensate for that. And then I found I get a little less feedback that way. Um, my channel EQ is generally for broad strokes. So I cut the lows, a shelf maybe at about 300, bring that down. Um, most vocal mics, as you know, have that sort of between 160 and 250. I sort of pull that out with a little bell. And then that, that super harsh 1K, 1 1.5. Um, and then I'll bring down a little bit of sizzle on top. I, I don't particularly like a sizzly mix and a sparkly mix. I'm not mixing jazz. Uh, I'm mixing rock and roll. So most of my favorite rock and roll records were recorded to tape, and it pretty much t tapers off at around 10K anyways. So really, I, I don't want those frequencies to be screaming at me f coming from any instrument. Maybe the cymbals. The cymbals are the only thing that I have a little bit of sparkle on. Um, so now on the Digico, you've got that multiband compressor, and I will also use that as a tone shaping tool, and that helps to, to get rid of those harsh mids. Um, another thing that I used to do back on the profile was to put a, de a de-esser on that mid-band, maybe set it around 1.5 or 2K just to tame that harshness that comes from that really, really harsh preamp. Um, 
And then after that, I'll go to the graphic and anything that I hear that's sort of ringing or resonating in the house, I'll pull out on the graphic. And it really helps me to get even more gain on that vocal without feedback. You you just answered the question I was going to ask, which was, are you doing that on the channel level or on the uh, the mix, you know, output? But it's it sounds like you're doing it at the channel level. Yeah, and then, you know, I also one technique that I've brought from the studio to my live mixing is putting a compressor on my output on my stereo. So it's not doing a ton, but because I'm compressing that output, I don't have to hit the vocal channel as hard. So I basically have the compressor on the vocal. I have the multiband as well that I think runs before. Yeah, so it goes channel gain, EQ, multiband compressor, and then another compressor, again, for those when he's got the mouth over the mic, screaming as loud as he can. It's only reducing when he's doing that. When he's singing you don't see a lot of gain reduction. Um, and then it's also hitting my stereo my stereo uh, compressor as well. On your left, right stereo? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. Um, for anybody who's not seen a Steel Panther show live, uh, you're really missing out. It's, it's entertaining, you know, for obvious reasons, because the guys are fun uh, and they're super talented, but it just always sounds good, uh, even in the most challenging of venues, uh, venues where I was you know, a couple of steps away from putting a gun in my mouth because I was so unhappy with my mix. (laughs) (laughs) Nick somehow has this magic touch where it just, it sounded, you know, outstanding night after night. So yeah, my hat is off to you, man, on on that. So thank you for sharing that uh, information and some of the tips and tricks there. Yeah. Thank you again. You know, I, like I say, as long as I have the tools, if I have my good sounding sources on stage from the band who they provide that consistency to me every night. I have my console. Even if it's not my console, I have my show file on someone else's console. Um, and I have time. I can, I can make it sound like me, like it's me mixing Steel Panther if I'm on a Pro 2 or an M32 or an SD5 running at 96K. It's still going to be pretty much <laughs> what I'm going for. Man, you ran the gamut there going from a, an M32 to an ST5. <laughs> Covers all budgets and uh, capabilities for sure. Um, let's take a quick step back here. So um, you guys have been touring for quite a while, so this may be forcing you to recall some you know, older memories. But what goes into planning a tour for Steel Panther? So you know, being the production manager, you know, when, when the band sits down and says, hey, Nick, we're planning this tour, we're going to go... North America, we're going to start in Boston, we're going to work our way, you know, through Canada, United States, and end up in uh, Kansas City. I wonder why that all sounds so familiar, but (laughs) what goes into, uh, what are you guys doing, and how are you involved with, you know, the the pre-production and um, working with the band to make sure that everything goes off, you know, like they want it to, and like you want it to, what are, what are, what are you doing in that capacity? You know, so uh, we basically trust what the booking agent is booking for us. They have a long-standing relationship with this band and many other bands, and they have long-standing relationships with venues and promoters. So those years of trust are sort of built into how they route tours. And once in a while, I'll get 
an email from our agent and he says, hey, there's a venue we haven't done before. I sent a band there once and they didn't have a good time, but can you take a look at the spec and see if it's worth doing? So that's sort of my job is to vet potential venues and I'll say, yeah, this looks good or this looks like we could do it, but put something in the budget for us needing to rent some supplemental gear. And, and if, you know, and if the venue go or if the promoter goes for it, then yes, we could do that venue. How are you vetting those venues? Are you researching them online? Are you calling them up a combination of those things or how are you doing that without having to go there? I mean, if it's any venue worth playing, they've got a tech sheet either on their website or something that they send out to agents. Because of course, as a venue, you want to attract as many money-making shows as possible. So it's in everybody's interest to make your venue worthy of playing. All right, so you, you get involved, the, the booking agents uh, set up the, the tour and they recommend the, the venues, and then you are looking to see what they have for capabilities and where you may need to supplement. Um, where does it go from there? So basically, I, I get in touch with each venue, I hear back at some point, and we just we go through the checklist. I have, an, uh, I have a list that the agent sent to me that I send out to every venue, and it's just a questionnaire. Um, you know, you, you tell them what, you're, what vehicle you're coming in, can you secure parking? Um, you give them your sound requirements on a separate document, and they write back with any, any issues. Um, if there's anything that they... Any questions they have for you, they send that to you as well. So it's just going through with a fine-tooth comb. It's knowing which which sound systems are basically acceptable and also knowing that things cost money and that sometimes you just have to suck it up and work with something that works and isn't necessarily D&B. D&B is nice. Uh it was always a pleasure to mix on those rigs. Uh, it just made life so much easier. Yeah, when, when they're set up properly, it's a great, it's a pleasure. Have you been surprised by a venue? So, for example, you do all this back and forth, they answer the questions, and uh, you get there, and it's not quite what you thought it was going to be? I have um, a nice memory, actually, of the, the last show we did in Europe on, the, our, on our last tour. Um, it was supposed to be two shows back to back in Dublin. And for whatever reason, they moved the second show to Cork, which is a city that most tourists don't go to. And it's a really old city. And just from the, the inception of that, I was just dreading it because I saw the, the emails back and forth between the agents and the venue and them saying, look, we can't pull the bus anywhere near the venue because the roads are too tiny. They're built for horse and carriage. Um, it's a really small sort of upstairs venue. It only holds about 500 people. And so this was just looking like, oh my God, this is going to be terrible. And we get there and yeah, it's small, but it's the reason that the, the capacity is 500 on paper is because it's an upstairs venue in an old building and there's not enough fire escape. So... Technically, you could fit twelve or fifteen hundred people in there, but legally, it's five hundred. And they had a brand new, like, killer light rig, brand new L acoustics rig. And yeah, the stage was small, but we don't have backline; we can fit on any stage. Um, and they took such great care of us. We basically could eat whatever we wanted to from the cafe downstairs. It was a great location. I had plenty of time in the afternoon to go walk around and shop and see the sights after sound check. So. 
it surprised me in that I was expecting this this gig to be a shit show. And most often the last show of the tour is you're you're like, why couldn't we have just gone home yesterday? So yeah, I, I was surprised to have a, a positive experience there. And I hope that we get to go back. It's always nice to be pleasantly surprised that uh, that is a, a definite uh, positive benefit there. So when you're planning a tour and uh, are you generally specking out Digico SD11 for the majority of your tours right now? And uh, do you guys own an SD11? Are you going through a like a Claire or somebody like that? Or how are you doing that side of things? Yeah, if, if we're doing a tour on a bus where we're, we're the ones in charge of getting from show to show and we can carry stuff, then yeah, absolutely. I'll go to Claire. I'll get SD11s for front of house and stage. We'll share a stage rack. We'll get it as small and inexpensive as possible. And, and Claire's not, they're not a cheap, they're not a low cost rental company. They are, you pay a premium for them, but their service is great and their gear is great and it just works. And so I found it's worth it's worth paying that premium for that service. And then we've gotten, we just carry less gear from them. So it's basically, it's about the same price as we were paying. Um, if we were to get, you know, two SC48s and, and carry maybe a drum sub, we just said, okay, let's use a house drum sub and take these two smaller consoles and share a stage rack. Speaking of drums, can you talk a little bit about how you approach the, uh, Miking your drums and some of your uh, philosophies towards uh, getting that sound because I've heard other people say it and I will echo it. Your your snare sound is probably the <laughs> sickest, fattest, uh, most ridiculously awesome snare I think people will hear in a live scenario. So what's your approach towards miking drums, your mic choices, placement, uh, any little secret sauce that you might want to share with people? You don't have to give away secrets, but... No, I'm I'm down to give away secrets, and and you know I'm I'm proud to say that my snare sound has been changing lives. I have engineers and drummers who have both gone to me and said, "Wow, like we had this band from Canada we toured with, um, and I saw them come through L.A. maybe six months after we finished the tour, and the drummer came to me and he was like, I started tuning my snare down like at least an octave lower than I used to have it because of you,' and I was like, "Yes, it's amazing." So again, so again. Starting at the source, it's it's a super well-tuned drum. It's a heavy steel DW six and a half. So the thing weighs about 30 pounds. Over the years, um, I've, I've gotten sticks to, to actually like tuning his snare down super low. It's the 80s sound. And you go and see a lot of 80s bands now that are out there still touring, and the drummer's got it all cranked up, all super high, because, yeah, it feels cool. And it's got bounce back. And like, as a sound guy, it just fucking sucks. There's nothing there. There's nothing to work with. You just have like a click and a spike and that's all you can do. So it's a great drum. It's tuned low. He hits like a motherfucker. He hits super consistent. Uh, Sennheiser 905 on top and bottom. Um, That's a a sadly a discontinued mic, but it has a faster transient. Did I say faster? I meant slower, slower transient attack than, uh, the other drum mics that Sennheiser makes. So as far as keeping things less of a slappy tappy, it's, it's a more lengthy sort of broad sound to it. Um, 
I tend to flip the phase on the top mic. And this is also an unpopular opinion. And I don't know if, I, if my science behind this is correct. But if you imagine a kick drum, you have the mic facing the batter head. And when the drum is hit, the air is moving toward the mic. And when you're miking a drum from the top, a snare drum, the reverse seems to be the case. So you're hitting down on the drum and you're getting the, the reverse sine wave first. That's the, how can I say this better? I thought, why not just reverse the phase on the top mic? That would not, would not that sound bigger? Because I want my snare to be as big as fucking possible. So that's a trick that I do. It doesn't always work, but then again, is the PA wired out of phase? Is the console wired out? Is there a cable somewhere that's out of phase? I don't know. That's why I check every night when I'm in a different venue. I flip my phases just to see what sounds best. Because a lot of times, I don't want to say a lot of times, some of the times the fucking PA is, is out of phase or the subs are out of phase. And I have to go to the house guy, hey, just so you know, check this out. You hear that? Yeah, your rig's out of phase. So phase is important. Um, I also, I do the smile curve on the snare. So I'm cranking everything from 250 and below about as high as it goes. And I'm cranking everything from five or six K up as high as it goes. Pretty much on both mics, maybe not so much on the bottom. Um, and then because sticks hits like a motherfucker and he hits consistent, I can actually gate the snare drum on both sides pretty, pretty hard. And then, so when people ask me, what are you doing to the snare? My first answer is a lot. <laughs> uh, and then I'm, I've had a separate channel of just pink noise. And I sort of EQ that to sound like a bottom snare mic. And I key the noise gate off the, the, the top snare mic. So every time he hits the snare hard, it's opening up a kind of a pink noise sound. And if you listen back to old, you know, hair metal records of the 80s, that's in there. That was the 80s sound. The true 80s studio snare drum sound was a little bit of the actual snare mics, pink noise, and then a Simmons tom underneath it. You know that sound too, that doo. So I try and replicate that without, without the Simmons sample. Um, and then I'm putting the snare through a either a non-linear or a gated type of reverb, something that's short, something that extends the length of the drum sound. And then I'll go through a plate or a hall in addition to that. So it's the phase, it's the EQ, it's the pink noise, it's running all of that through reverbs. And most of my snare sound is probably in the reverbs. I don't want to jinx you here, but what are you going to do when those 905s are no longer uh, with us. Um, I have the I have the ones that Sennheiser gave us. Um, there there are other great mics out there, and, and and like I said, so so little of the actual sound you're hearing through the PA is from the mics. Like they're basically just triggering reverb. <laughs> Uh, and then you do something, when you mentioned the triggering the pink noise, you do something uh, interesting with the kick. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, back in the early, early days of me learning sound, we had a little device called the DBX120. DBX120. And it's basically just, 
a subharmonic generator. I think it's got a, correct me if I'm wrong here, like a 20 hertz and a, no, it's got like a 32 hertz and a 40 hertz, something like that. So um, I'll make a separate channel with a sine wave at, I'll start at 40 and depending on the room and the rig, it might want to go up to 43. It might want to go up to 50, but I try and have it be at 40 and I'll just trigger a gate off the kick. So that's, that's my sub sound. And that allows me a little more control because it's not feedback coming from the mic. It's just, it's just a, a sine wave and I can control the length. Um, I can send that just to the subs if I've got a rig that allows me to do that. And when you're dealing with a, a 22 inch kick drum, kind of the, the fundamental tone is closer to 80 and I don't like 80 in my kick. So it's a way for me to basically like take the octave down an entire, sorry, it's a way for me to take the fundamental note down an octave. Yeah, no, it works really well. And are you using one or two mics with your kicks? Are you doing an in and an out or just one? Oh, uh, one more uh, unpopular opinion. I have um, 901 and 902 gaff taped together and both just tossed them inside the drum. And They're Just sitting in there? They're not mounted or anything <laughs> like that? No, and there's there are a great number of products that cost a lot of money on how to mount your kick drum mic inside the drum. And this has worked for me for over a decade and I'm not going to change. Does he uh, use a lot of dampening material in the kick or what's, what's yeah, the he, of the kick? Yeah, he, he prefers a fair amount of dampening. So um, the, the typical little pillow kit that DW sends out is not enough. I'll do that plus maybe one or two others. And he likes a, a pretty dead kick because it allows him to do the double kick thing um, with not as much bounce back. Uh, the way that I set up his kick pedal, it's the spring is as loose as you can possibly go. And that sort of lets you just lay into the drum without having the beaters bounce back. Um, not, to div not to diverge too much, but um, I used to mix a, a local band here, and the drummer's kick was full of windbreakers for some reason. <laughs> I was like, well, this is awesome. If a uh, rain shower breaks out, we'll all be protected. But uh wasn't doing the sound any favors. No, I've seen a lot of things in inside uh, kick drums. I, I just took my kit out of storage because I was recording some drums at home, and I forgot that I, I bought this pillow and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it now, but it's like a weighted kick drum pillow and it's the best. That thing rules. Yeah. And I, I was at tour supply one day and the guy who makes it was bringing in a shipment and I was like, sold. Like, I don't need to hear anything. <laughs> like this thing is awesome. That's cool. Uh, I'll definitely have to look into those. Um, okay. And then just run us through the rest of the drum kit real quick. I know you're using, um, Oh, the, MK4s. Uh, MK4s for overheads. Thanks for that yeah. tip. I, I bought a pair and I've been playing around with them and I, I love them. You, you did not miss the mark when you recommended that. It's a great mic. Um, another getting back to the source thing that we, that I, that I keep talking about, cause I think sources are super important. Uh, we switched to Sabian cymbals a few years back and because they are not as loud as other cymbals, it allows me to actually use the overheads in my mix. Whereas when we were using, I'm not going to name other, other brands of cymbals that were just too loud. I just couldn't even put them in because the cymbals were coming into every other mic. So you can actually hear the snare and toms in my overheads now too. So I get a lot more control out of them. So yeah, on, on the toms, we're using the, the 904s 
and I sort of point those right to where the stick is striking the head. Um, and then again, because he hits hard and he hits consistent, I can gate those really heavily to keep the symbols out of them. Um, close mics on hat and ride. I'm, I'm using, uh, the 908 D, which is a little, a little mini gooseneck mini condenser mic, which, you know, most mics you put close to a hat just sound awful and you have to shelf all this, you know, everything from 2k down out of it. These actually just sound like the symbol. They're great. That's cool. You uh, you pointed out to me when I was using the Beta 98s, uh, I think on one of the first or second nights, uh, the mic had actually gotten too close to the hat and the hat was hitting the mic. Yeah. And I was finding, I was like trying to chase this really bizarre noise that would come up every once in a while. And you're like, hey, dude, uh, your 98 is, uh, the hi-hat's hitting that mic. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's another one of those like, Go into the source things, you know. I've, I've worked with some monitor guys who, it just drives me crazy. Like when there's when there's something that's changed or something that needs to be changed on stage, and you've got like three of the guys in the band all saying the same thing. And so what does he do? He goes to the sends for each guy and and changes it on each one. And I'm like, dude, grab the gain. Like gra- go to the source, grab the thing that's that's wrong, and then everyone will be happy, and and then we'll get this sound check done even quicker. So yeah, you ca- you just have to go. You know, because we carry the same mic kit everywhere we go, if I'm listening to the drums and I'm doing my line check out front and something's weird, I don't go to my console. I go to the stage because that's that's where the thing that is inconsistent has changed. So there's a mic that's not in the right spot. Whatever it is, I don't go to my channel. I go to where the mic is. Working smarter, you know, not harder, That's uh, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks. Um, jumping back to your console for a second, how do you lay out your, your board? You know, are you doing a lot of group mixing? Are you, I think one of the things that people are learning during this downtime is everybody's watching, uh, Pooch on his, uh, you know, master classes and he's talking about, well, I take this group into this group, into that group, and then that group goes to this. Uh, what's your philosophy on laying out your console and, and how do you like to mix your show? I keep it pretty simple. I don't do a lot of group processing. Um, like I said, other than my stereo group and it's basically just drums are on the first page. It's got the, the SD 11 has got 12 faders. So that's all my 12 drum inputs. Um, and then I put everything that I need to actually touch during the show on page two. So I've got two guitar lines. I, I boost the second guitar for solos and I EQ that one a little darker and I put a little more delay on it so that when I turn it up, the sound changes slightly. It's a little more affected and a little bit darker. Um, And then because I'm using that stereo EQ on my output, when I throw faders all the way up, it's a little less drastic. It tends to glue the mix together. So I might do, this is a, a, a thing that I, I always loved Andy Wallace, um, the way he does drums, he'll do like a splash of reverb just before a chorus or just before the end of a bridge, something to sort of, as the song is moving from one part to another, he'll like throw a, some big reverb thing. So I do that all the fucking time. And I'm not afraid to throw my reverb fader all the way to the, to the end. And be, and because I'm compressing my output, it's, less hard on the ears and it just sort of 
glues everything together. Um, so on my second page, I'll put, you know, guitar, bass, vocals, and then I'll put that drum reverb return and I'll put my vocal echo or delay return too, because I do a lot of that as well. So just basically I have one like utility page that has all the stuff I need for the show. And then page three will be for the part of the show where we change scene, we'll do like an acoustic thing. So that'll be the piano or the acoustic guitar or whatever else, the auxiliary instruments that aren't in use throughout the whole show. And then the pages after that are just effects returns, just in case. But I tend to drive all my effects from the source. So my vocal delay, I send it from the channel when I want to hear it, rather than having this delay that's constantly repeating every word he always says. And I know a lot of guys will just take their delay return and put it on a VCA and they'll ride that. But for me, that's just, it's just a bunch of noise. Yeah, that's, uh, and maybe that's why your mixes are so much, so clean, you know, and so intelligible is you're, you're not getting that extra information in there. Yeah. And it's, my technique might seem like more work to some people, but it's getting the effect that I want. And it, it, it's again, it's the way my brain perceives it. And yeah, it's a little bit harder, but that's why things sound the way that they do. It works, you know, it, it works. Um, are you using any sort of macros or anything like that on the SD11? Yeah, um, my main macros, uh, I'll do tap tempo for my delay. Um, I, like I said, that, that vocal delay send, I will open that up with a macro instead of having to go to the channel and, and unmute it. Um, I have a macro for my ballad snare and that's just, it just cranks the reverb time um, and changes the balance a little bit. It's a little more of the hall reverb, a little less of the gated. So for a song like Community Property, I'll just punch the ballad. Or when I'm doing like a crazy, you know, when they do their, after their very, their first two songs, they do a big thing where they all get to the front of the stage and do like machine gun guitars and, and I'll just hit the ballad snare and turn this, turn the return all the way up on that last snare hit before the lights go down. And it just sounds like a stadium. It's great. Um, so yeah, just the, the things I need to access to quickly. Um, I have a mute all on my macros, even though that's kind of dangerous, but fortunately if I do accidentally mute the entire console, I can quickly unmute it. Um, and then save my show. I have that there too. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, I think I w I'd like to ask one last quick question. Uh, we're coming up on an hour here, and you've been really gracious with your time, uh, so I really appreciate that. But uh, um, when you get into a new venue and you're running your reference music, um, walk us through what you're, what you're doing, what you're listening for, the adjustments you're making. Um, you know, how are you getting the, the PA tuned so that it sounds consistent, even if you're in a, you know, a barn in Oklahoma or a really old theater in Kansas city or a new house of blues in Boston. Um, you know, how, what are you looking for? What are you, what are you doing there to, to get that PA to sound so, you know, buttery. So I've, I've used the same reference track for at least 10 years and it's, and you are also a Donald Fagan fan, but it's, um, it's IGY off the Nightfly, and there'll be some, grouchy house guy who'll be like, no, Steely Dan. And I'll be like, okay, bro. First off, it's not Steely Dan. 
And second off, like, it's my show, so fuck off. Um, what I've come to appreciate about that recording, and you can read about it, it's, it's the first uh, commercial, commercially available digital recording. And it was from, I want to say, 1981. Um, what I've come to appreciate about that recording is that of each frequency that's available to you on the graphic EQ, that those third octaves, each one kind of almost represents a different element of the recording. And it's weird, like as you're going through it, the kick is perfect. It's right there at 40 and 60. And 400 is right where sort of the background vocals are. And 2.5 is where the guitar is. It's plucking these little, you know, it's a, it's a muted plucked guitar. And the hi-hat is like exactly at 8K. So everything is already sort of separated in that recording. And so you can tell where your problem frequencies are just based on what element of the recording you're hearing too much of. And again, it may be unconventional, but that's, that's how I've gone about it. And generally, if I tune the room to that song, when I open up the rest of my inputs, it sounds how it's supposed to sound. And I guess that goes for really any reference song that you know how it's supposed to sound. That's the whole purpose of it is to, like you're carrying this console, you're carrying your mics, you're carrying your drums. Those things are consistent every day. What's different? It's the house, it's the PA. So test something that you know what it's supposed to sound like. Um, but I just, I love that recording because it does what I need it to do. And I think that a lot of new recordings are really bad and super colored. Like they just, it's like they ran everything through like 10 instances of a Neve plugin. It's, everything's just like, it's not like that recording doesn't lie to you. It says, here's, here's what your speakers are doing. Yeah. You told me something really interesting on the tour um, when I was trying to tune a PA uh, with, with my Donald Fagan song, which is Snowbound. Um, you said, uh, don't worry what your EQ looks like. Uh, worry about what it sounds like. Because I was, I was pointing out to you, I was like, I've pulled 10 dB out of 315. And you're like, it's what you got to do, man. That The box resonates at 315. I thought that was really, really sage advice. Yeah, and really it's... <sighs> I would say out of every 10 venues I go to one or two maybe are actually tuned with, with a, a musical ear in mind. Um, I'm not a system tech, so I don't, I don't know how to fly a PA and how to really set it up, but I have that musician's ear. And I think that you need, you, you need both brains to really get, a sound system to work properly, but you can't have a, a just someone who comes at it from a scientific standpoint tune a room for music because it's not going to sound good. It's going to be way too bright. It's going to be way too much lower mid. Because yeah, like on a on a spectrum, yeah, the room's flat. Like all the frequencies are hitting you at the same amount, but like that doesn't sound good. Um, so I mentioned we're, we're over an hour here, but, uh, I love following your Instagram feed. Uh, for those not following Nick on Instagram, seek him out. Uh, your dogs are a riot and you seem to capture some of the best, uh, videos of your pups in action. How are the dogs doing these days? They're, um, the first couple days of quarantine were strange because they were like 
when are you guys going to leave? So my wife and I have taken to like both coming downstairs to the studio just for an hour and putting them in their crates because they're, they're crate trained. So as you know, you know, dogs really, they prefer to keep a routine. So even if us being home more is, you know, it seems like it's preferential, uh, we try to give them their space and let them, let them be them. But yeah, I, I, I appreciate that you enjoy my feed and I can't wait to get to touring again so I can fill my feed up with steel panther antics and the um scantily clad women who like to dance on stage that does happen occasionally at a steel panther show i'm told i uh you know i avert my eyes most of the time (laughs) (laughs) you're a good boy steve yeah uh that's debatable but um anyways nick uh thank you a million times over for spending an hour with us here uh sharing some of your experiences and tips and tricks this is really invaluable and and um, I really appreciate you uh, coming on the air and, and talking with us here. Well, it's been a pleasure, and I'm happy to do it anytime. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yep. Um, do you want to give a plug or anything if anybody wants to follow you on Instagram or something for the band, or what, what do you guys got uh, coming up if, if and when this uh, quarantine lifts? Yeah, my Instagram is elmabees, E-L-M-A-B-E-E-Z. And uh, currently the Panther is on hiatus from touring as we all are for a while, but they're always doing some creative things online. Uh, their new music video for let's get high tonight just came out. Uh, please go watch it. It's visually stunning. Um, and shout out to my boy, Darkides, D-A-R-K-I-D-E-S. He's a, he's our monitor guy. And he also is, a feeling the sting of not touring, but, um, yeah, that's someone who I, I learn a ton from and who I like working with a lot. He's actually on one of our episodes as well. Uh, so that'll be, he'll, uh, I'll let him know that you said hello through the pod and um, he'll give you a shout back, I'm sure too. That's my boy. I Like I said, I learned so much on the tour with you guys. You know, I've been doing this a number of years and I've never been so humbled so fastly as I was, uh, you know, going and watching what you guys do, but also great opportunity to learn. Uh, and so, I really uh, am thankful for you guys. So thanks. My pleasure, man. Talk to you soon. All right. See you, Nick. Take it easy. And that's a wrap on today's show. I hope that you found it equal parts entertaining and informative. This show is recorded on an Allen and Heath D live system with sure microphones and waves tracks live. I use Skype, FaceTime and Facebook messenger to meet with my guests. So the occasional robot voice is to be expected. Thanks again to Merrick Goodwin for the awesome show music and to you for listening. Be sure to visit the Mixmasters website at www.mixmasterspodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend. Mixmasters can also be found on Facebook and Instagram at mixmasterspodcast. That's all one word. Give a like, follow us, and never miss out on new episodes. 